Okay, we're chapter 11. <coughs> As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, that's the two villages right next to each other. Bethany is where Lazarus is from. Uh, there's a, his so-called tomb is there. My favorite beggar in all Jerusalem is there. He's this wonderful guy. I bring him M&Ms every time I go. Uh, most articulate, the guy could run, run IBM. Why he's, you know, he sells, he's not a beggar, he sells book, bookmarks. But um, Bethany is literally just over the hill from Jerusalem. I mean, it is, again, you could, if you could arch a bow and an and arrow, you could almost, you know, hit it that way. It's just, it's not very far at all. And um, we, we, uh, we know that, Jesus is, is friends with um, uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus and they're in Bethany. And this whole business about sending for the, the donkey and the colt and that sort of stuff, I wonder sometimes if that isn't Lazarus. And also the fact that the owner of the colt isn't there, right? He says, go get the colt. People are gonna ask you, blah, blah, blah. I think the owner of the colt is probably walking with Jesus. So it's a prearranged thing. I just saw that this morning. I thought it was a pretty cool idea. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. That's a very important detail, because uh, animals, especially animals that were used for, like for a king to ride, they were not supposed to have been ever ridden. Um, sacramental uh, animals weren't supposed to be used for anything else. Same thing with a tomb when Jesus is uh, buried, a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. You know, that means it's fit for a king to be used. So that's an important little detail there. Uh, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. So it's, it's all been prearranged. It's not necessarily some miracle and he's, you know, no, they're with him in the crowd, and Lazarus says, look, I told him to leave the donkey tied up right side of this, so tell him, if, if anybody asked, just tell him. I said it was okay. I think that's the, that's the idea. Um, when I was a kid, I thought that was some, a miracle, but I don't think it is. They went and found a colt uh, outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there say, hey, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. So interesting that all that detail is there just for, the, just for getting a cold. Um, they answered as Jesus said, uh, when they brought the cold to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Um, first, or second Kings 9.13, when King Yehu enters uh, Jerusalem, it's the same scene. They're waving palm branches and that sort of thing. So this is very much the image of a king coming. And it also helps you to appreciate why they missed it. I mean, everything he's doing says king. And he's talked about thrones. So let's not be hard on the disciples for asking for thrones on either side and expecting Jesus to be a king. Because, well, he is a king. Right? He is a king. What you need to know is the way, the, 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 the mount that a king is riding when he comes into a city tells, is, tells everything. If a king is coming in peace, like you conquer a city, okay, city's conquered, and here comes the king. Well, the people in the conquered city are looking real close to see what the king is riding. 
If he's riding a donkey, that means he's coming in peace. He's not going to do much fighting on the back of a donkey, right? And there's some stories in this of David doing this. He comes into a city, he's riding a colt, and people go, we're okay. If he's riding a war horse, we're all in big trouble, okay? And um, the, um, the, the, the Talmud, um, the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin 98a, says, when Israel is ready, uh, well, if Israel is not ready, the Messiah will come riding the foal of a donkey, but when is, Israel is ready, he will ride a white horse. It's right out of Judaism. Okay, that's the Talmud, Sanhedrin, that's a chapter in the Talmud, uh, 98a. If Israel is not ready, he will ride the foal of a donkey. When Israel is ready, he will ride a white horse. In Revelation, when Jesus appears, what's he riding? Right, and he's coming in war, right? It's a war. Okay. So it's elegant. All the pieces fit together. And there's a passage in John, I think it's in John, where they're, they're entering the city and they're waving their branches and you know John's always whispering. And John whispers that they didn't understand what they were doing. Only after the Spirit come did they realize they'd done these things to him. So this heavy, heavy prophetic activity going on here, every, every little thing. And maybe that's why all the detail is given for the acquisition of the colt. Many people spread their cloaks on the, <coughs> on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now those branches come from Jericho. Jericho is the city of the palms. So palm branches, palms don't grow in, in Jerusalem. So Jericho is the city of the palms. So they bring in palm branches. Uh, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, and look at the structure, it's A-B-B-A. Hosanna, A. Blessed is he who come in the, nor- in the name of the Lord, B. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, B prime. Hosanna in the highest, A. A-B-B-B-A is a structure. <clears throat> now, blessed is he who come in the name, in the, comes in the name of the Lord is a standard Passover greeting. If I were to see Susan, if I were to see you in Jerusalem, I would say, oh, blessed is she who comes in the name of the Lord. But when they say it to Jesus, it has a whole new meaning, right? So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. I refer to this as the calm before the storm. Um, um, I wonder, one of my questions is, um, in uh, Luke, maybe also Matthew, but in the other accounts in the synoptics of Jesus entering Jerusalem, it's much more emotional. And Mark is the one who's always interested in emotion. So you help me understand this. I don't understand. In Luke, Jesus has been weeping. He sees the city breaks into tears. And he prophesies because he can see what's going to happen in 70 AD. You know, and, and he actually describes it in, in great detail. And one of the poignant things to me about the so-called triumphal entry is he's, he's wiping tears from his eyes. There's all this adulation around him coming from people who really don't understand what's going on. And in the middle of all these people, there's this person on the donkey who's been, who is crying or who has been crying. So, and I just don't understand why did Mark leave that out? Because Mark is interested in that. I don't know. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Humanity of Jesus. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit on it. 
When he reached it, however, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And Jesus knows this. Okay, um, th this is an example of a story of two stories that are really one story. The uh, the uh, the so-called cursing of the fig tree and the destruction of the temple are one story. I call it the story of the uh, the temple and the tree. Okay, so we'll we'll see how that works. So a lot of people are really upset by this, by Jesus cursing the fig tree. It's the only miracle that is destructive and all that kind of stuff. We'll hopefully we can sort that out. So he sees this tree, it's in leaf, and he goes over to get a fig off, but he knows there's not going to be figs. And of course, there's the other thing, well, sometimes there were early figs. That's another way people try to explain this away, but it's, uh, there's more going on than that. He, this is prophetic activity. Let me just give, you, me just give it away. <laughs> this is prophetic activity. The prophets did odd things, didn't they? They would lie on one side and then lie on another side or they would build a little city. They're all kinds of odd prophetic activities. Jesus does, he's a prophet. He's the prophet. He does prophetic activity. Writing in the sand with his finger in John 8, that was prophetic. And this, the cursing of the fig tree is prophetic activity. He's making a point. That's, that's the deal. So he, he is, we call it, he's actualizing and the, the reason the temple and the tree begin to belong together is the tree represents the temple. Okay, Herod's temple is green. I mean, by that I mean it's covered with gold and white marble. When the sun's hitting it, you can't even look at it. It's so dazzling, okay? And it's like a fig tree with all the leaves. But guess what? There's no fruit in that. And so... Isn't it interesting these two stories happen? Right before he tears the temple up, he gets really mad at this fig tree. Well, the, the fig tree is symbolic of the temple. And when, when he curses the fig tree, uh, he's actualizing. He, the fig tree becomes a parable of what the temple really is. See what I'm saying? Am I saying that well enough? I mean, you get the point? Okay. It's a complicated idea. So he sees this tree, there are leaves on it, it's, when Mark says it wasn't the time for figs, that's Mark's way of saying it's not about figs, y'all. It's not even the time for figs. Okay. Um, then he said to the tree, tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And the disciples heard him say this. That's an interesting little insertion. On reaching Jerusalem, so here we go. Now we're going we're gonna to see this applied. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And let me, let me uh, give you my read on this, and I'll just tell you, to be honest, this is full of assumptions, okay? But let me give you my read on this. The marketplace in the temple was referred to as the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest, right? Caiaphas was his son-in-law. It had always been held on the Mount of Olives. They knew not to have the temple market in the temple, in the courtyard, in this 35-acre courtyard, because it's packed with people anyway. And this is how I'll say it. <clears throat> this is me trying to make it sound like it makes sense. There is no word of that marketplace ever being in the temple until this moment. So I'm, uh, what's the word? hypothesizing or I'm assuming, and I'm not saying this is hard facts, this is just me trying to understand this, 
The first time there's any mention of the, the temple bazaar or the, the bazaar of Annas moving from the Mount of Olives into the temple is Jesus' uh, ministry. And the first time is in John, what, two or three? First time he tears it up. That's the first time in any ancient literature we hear of that temple, um, that market being, be, being there. The next time, the next Passover Jesus is in Jerusalem that John tells us about, there's no mention of it being there. I think they moved it back. I'm assuming, right? Beware of my assumptions, okay? But this is me just trying to make sense of it. Okay, so I think year two of his ministry, they moved it back. Year three, it's back. And he is ticked. He was really mad when he saw it the first time when he tore it up. It wasn't there the second year. That's why we have no reference to any problem. And I'm assuming that the third year it's back. And he is really mad. Why is he so mad? I mean, come on, lighten up. You know, there, there needs to be a temple market. Pilgrims have come a long way. They can't carry a lamb all that way. And they need a lamb that's spotless. Also, that you've got to pay your temple tax. And that can only be paid in a Tyrian shekel. Okay, so that's what the money changers are doing. I'm bringing you my local money and they're giving you a, a Tyrian shekel. Why? Why a Tyrian shekel? It was the purest silver uh, coin and it was also about the same size as the old Hebrew shekel. So completely legitimate. Unfortunately, there's an, the image of Hercules on one side of it, which is not a good thing. And then on the other side, it says something like... Uh, you know, um, and there, there's something to, to, that says that God dwells interior in entire uh, or something. Uh, I don't, I've got it written probably in my notes somewhere. But anyway, so why why should Jesus be so upset? Here's why he's upset. They set the, the, the temple marketplace up in the court of the Gentiles. If I am a God-fearer, if I'm a Jew, I mean, if I'm a Gentile who's come under the influence of Judaism, like the centurion, like other God-fearers that we're going to meet in Acts. This is as close to the temple as I could come. It's the only place I have to pray. And I think he's really angry that they've done this disservice to the Gentiles. Because what does he say when he's tearing the temple up? My house will be a house of prayer, right? And you made it a den of, a den of thieves. And one of the, I think the very last prophecy in Zechariah was when the Messiah comes, there'll be no more merchants in the temple. Well, that got vividly uh, fulfilled. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so he begins driving out those who are buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And again, it, it's not, again, what have you heard preached your whole life? Well, they were charging, you know, exorbitant rates. That's not true. The, the temple set the, 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 the percentage uh, exchange rate and the exchange rate was like very low. It only covered the wearing of, off of the silver from the shekel. So it was like 10%. It wasn't very much. So that's not in the text that they are overcharging people. It's just the fact that they're there. That's why he's mad, okay? So um, he began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Why is he mad at the dove sellers? because that was the sacrifice for poor people. When Mary and Joseph dedicate him, they use a dove because they're poor. So he doesn't like it that the, the poor are you know, being taken advantage of. Um, 
<clears throat> and, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Let me read you something from the Mishnah. This is tractate Barakoth, uh, chapter nine, line five. So go home and look this up in your Mishnah. <laughs> A man should not behave himself unseemly while opposite the eastern gate since it faces the holy of holies. The eastern gate's the gate he came in. He may not enter into the temple mount with his staff or his sandal or his wallet or with dust on his feet, nor may he make the short path. So he can't cut through the temple to get to where he's going. Still less may he spit. So you can't spit. We all know about that, right? So what, Je- what Jesus is doing, he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. He's not letting them cut through. You gotta go around. This is a place where people are praying. And now Matthew adds another uh, detail that none of the gospels talk about. And I think in some senses, it's as big a miracle as, uh, as as big a deal as him tearing up the temple. Matthew says that when Jesus was in the temple, the blind and the lame came to him. Well, they were normally excluded from the temple. But now Jesus has reestablished it as a quiet place where the Gentiles can pray. He's over here teaching. He's not letting anybody make a sh- shortcut. He's making them go walk all the way around. And the lame and the blind are coming to him. If you were a Levite, even if you were a Levite, if you were lame or blind, you couldn't come in the temple. Well, that's a whole new thing that he's done. And I think it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal. Uh, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house should be called a house for all the nations? So now the Gentiles have a, have a quiet place to, to pray. But you have made it a den of robbers. That's Zechariah uh, 14, 21. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Now we know that the plot began in chapter three, right? It, it was as early as chapter three. They decided they were gonna kill him. And now they, they've got him on their own turf. Um, and that group that just got mentioned, um, the chief priest, teacher of the law, those are the people who will bring Jesus to Pilate. So this happens. This all happens. Okay. So they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared, uh, they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. So the picture is, remember I, picked, I showed you that picture of the Kydron Valley? He's, he's crisscrossing. He's going back and forth from that valley every night. He's either, initially I think he's staying in Bethany with Lazarus, but when, when things start getting hot, I think they just start sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane because he doesn't want Lazarus to get in trouble. Because when they come to arrest him, they would have arrested Lazarus too. Right, so they start. This is just me supposing, but this makes sense. He's sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in in the the last few days. Okay. Now, now we're back to the the fig tree. In the morning, as they went along, the fig tree uh, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, not the, the the leaves withered and it withered from the top down. It withered from the bottom up. Okay. Um, Peter, notice Peter, who mentioned it before, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has (coughs) has withered. Wow, that's cool. Uh, And my note says, what happened to the tree had already happened to the temple. That's the point. That's why it's the story of the tree and the temple. 
the fruitless tree, the fruitless temple, right? Um, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, and they're standing on the Mount of Olives when he says this, go throw yourself into the sea, uh, and does not doubt in his heart what believe, but believes that what he says will happen. It will be done for him. So you know what I just did? You guys can do that sort of thing if you believe. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you will receive it, and it will be yours. And, and interesting to me, he turns this into a story of forgiveness. This very much shows his heart. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. This, that's, we call that reciprocity, the reciprocity of Hesed. They arrived, because <coughs> they're on their way, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders, that's the Sanhedrin, those are the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. And when I say Sanhedrin, just think Supreme Court. Supreme Court. Um, by what authority are you doing these things? That's a very interesting question. No one ever says, you shouldn't have torn up the temple. They never say that. They just say, who gave you the authority to do that? Because they know they hadn't given him the authority to do that. It's a question of authority. It's not a question of whether what he did was right or wrong. I think they all knew what he did was right. So by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority uh, to do this. And Jesus replied very rabbinically, I will ask you a question, answer me, and I will tell you about what authority I do these things, okay? Deal? <laughs> John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves. See, it's a question they can't say yes to or no to. It's a, it's a trap. If we say from heaven, uh, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus and believe me, they are not used to saying this. They said, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, then either I'll tell you about what authority uh, I'm doing these things. And we'll stop right there. Um, Let's look at some questions. Okay, are these all the questions that were back in the room too? Okay, Graham, there are those for me to you. And let me say this by, by looking at these and answers. I'm not assuming that I can answer everybody's questions. I'm just doing the best I can. And they, it's part of my gig. They told me I have to do this, so <laughs> I'm doing it. Okay? Yeah. Those are all new as a Okay, thank, thank you. Thanks, Bill. See, because if I was you, I would say, who does he think he is trying to answer those questions? He didn't know what he's talking about. And you'd be right. Okay, but just not knowing about it has never stopped me from talking about it. Mm, There's so much I want to write. The time has been a blessing. Um, I'll write later. What are your thoughts as to why there were 12 baskets after the feeding of the 5,000? Of course, the simple answer is 12 disciples. Um, I'm wondering if this was a test for the disciples. Were they going to care for Jesus as he had cared for them? Can't stop thinking about this. Good. I'm glad you can't stop thinking about this. 
Well, I, I do think it was an object lesson for them that they were going to be perfectly provided for. Yeah, I do. Do you think people had heard about the healing of the woman who touched Jesus' robe when they begged him to let the sick touch his robe, Mark 6, 56? Or was this some common thought about healers of the day? That is a great question. Um, that the clothing had power. Well, we see that in Acts, don't we? Paul blesses cloths and they, they heal people. So from that, I'm guessing it's probably, a common, it's probably a common idea. But just because it's a common idea doesn't discount the fact that in regards to Jesus, when they're going to touch him, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sign that they believe that touching him is going to heal them. When the woman with the issue of blood, the, when she gets healed, one of the reasons I think Jesus finds her, I call it magical thinking. To the thought that, okay, if I touch that, the hem of that garment, it's actually the, the fringes of his prayer shawl that touches the fringe of his prayer shawl. That's magic. And you know Christians who think that. If I, if I make this prayer and say, in Jesus' name, then it'll happen. It's almost like in Jesus' name is the right incantation or something. It's magical thinking. I've got, if I do the right things, then the magic will happen, as opposed to completely putting your faith in him, right? And so if I, if, 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 uh, when Jesus says your faith has healed you, yeah, your faith healed you, but it was your faith in him that healed you. See what I'm saying? Uh, it's kind of, it, it can, it's a slippery slope to you know, prosperity gospel. If I do the right things and say the right things, let a rich young ruler if I do the right things and say the right things, I'll get it. I'll get what I want. Um, and, and then God just kind of becomes the, uh, yeah, yeah. He's the, uh, what's the word? Vending machine. Vending machine. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, but I call it bubblegum man. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that Jesus didn't stay in inns. Do you have any more facts regarding Jesus' birth that are not common knowledge? Well, I'm not really sure what, what common knowledge is. Um, I do think it's important to get this. In the first place, it's impossible to, to, to construct a perfect um, chronology. That's really difficult. But I do think it's important to understand that Luke is really the nativity and that Matthew's story happens at, at least a year and maybe two years later. That's really important. And so, so what does that mean? That means when you set your manger scene up in your room, in your living room, you put the wise men over on the other side of the room because they're not there yet, okay? <laughs> Jesus is a little boy and he's staying in a house when the wise men get there, okay? And I think, I think those kind of details are, are important. The star, um, I really believe the star is an angel uh, because there is no planetary, uh, celestial, I taught in a planetarium for six years, so believe me, I've, I've checked, this, checked this out. Every year we had the Star Bethlehem show, and it just used to drive me crazy. Um, and we had this long thing about it was this conjunction between these two planets and blah, 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 blah. But let me tell you, you go up in the sky and look tonight, see if uh, the brightest star in the sky can indicate an individual house. It doesn't, work, it doesn't work that way. And the angels are referred to in a couple of places as stars. So I think they followed, the star they followed was an angel because it'll go away and then come back. So I think that's what the wise men uh, followed. There's a lot of interesting details like that about the birth of Jesus, but those are the only ones that come to mind. Um, you know, oh, but here, okay, this is interesting though. Luke, uh, you know, it, 
What's Luke? Luke's a slave. Who is, who is the baby Jesus in Luke's gospel? He's an impoverished baby wrapped in rags. Those are rags he's wrapped in. That's a token of his poverty. And he's lying in a feeding trough. Okay? Who worships him? Shepherds who are very marginalized. Okay? And Matthew, who is the, the, the little boy Jesus? He's a king. And people give him stuff that you give to kings. Gold and that sort of thing. Why? Because Matthew's major category is the kingdom. See? And so I think it helps us understand. That's why, that's why Matthew is interested in that part of the story and why God, you know, and the Holy Spirit is active in all this. I'm, you know, they're not making this up. The Holy Spirit is moving them, but, but they're, the things that they're drawn to are, are part of what God uses. Matthew's very interested in the kingdom, and so he's going to show you this little king who gets stuff that you give to kings. And people who say this person is the king, that's what the Magi do in Persia. They're the kingmakers. They're the one who decide who's going to be king. Okay? I think that's really interesting. But it also just makes sense. You know, the Bible just makes sense that way. Uh, I was once challenged by a Jewish person who basically said that um, leaven, yeast, equaling sin was a Christian idea. Um, where in the text of scripture is it judicated? Is that what the word? Is it anyway presented as a picture of sin? I'm not so, uh, I don't know of the place in the Old Testament where, it, where it's uh, pictured as sin, but I can tell you that in the observance of Passover, the, the whole uh, ridding the house of yeast and making unleavened bread is because yeast is a symbol of sin. And, and sometimes Jewish people will tend to do this. If there's part of Judaism that we latch onto and find meaning in, they'll go, no, it's not really that way. But I, I, I guarantee you, you ask any Orthodox Jewish person, why do you get all the leaven out of your house during Passover? It's because leaven represents sin. That's, that's like page one of the, uh, I think they call it the Haggadah, the little book that tells you what to do for Passover. So yeah, your Jewish friend is messing with you. Rodney Stark in Triumph of Christianity suggests that Salome was one of Jesus' sisters. The Salome that danced, you mean? Oh, was one of his, oh, okay, the, of the three? Well, if, if those are three separate women, then yeah, Salome might be a sister. But if you take the, the other two designations of who she might be, if that's the same person, she's Jesus' aunt. Okay? So um, if you're going to follow, and I'm not saying he's wrong, I'm just saying that, that if that's the same person, she's described as his mother's sister, which he couldn't be Jesus' sister if he was his mother's sister, and he's also, she's also described as the mother of Zebedee's sons. And I choose to believe that's the same person because I really want it to be that way. But that could be three completely, if that's three completely different people, then it could be a sister, okay? Salome is a real common name. It comes from Shalom. So a lot of, a lot of uh, Miriam, a lot of people are named Miriam. That's Moses' sister's name. So I'm gonna name my child that because it's a really cool name because I really like Moses. I'm a Jewish person. I like Moses, okay? Ah, if Luke was a slave... How was he free to follow Jesus? That is a great question. Um, and here's, here's my answer. Um, Luke is this hypochorism, it's this nickname from Lucian, right? 
We talked about this, why, how slaves are named? Okay, okay. Lucian, okay, so if, if we're following tradition about how slaves are named, there's every likelihood that the person who bought Luke in the first place was named Lucian. Okay, Paul has a relative named Lucian. He refers to him twice. <clears throat> and I know this is building assumption upon assumption, but it's all I got. Um, I suggest to you, Lucian, who's a relative of Paul, purchases Luke and gives him to Paul to take care of him, to travel with him, to help him take care of him uh, medically, whatever the thorn, thorn of the flesh was. That, those are huge assumptions, right? The, the scholars, those, that makes their heads explode. But, so a scholar can't make an assumption like that, but a banjo player can. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I know that laugh. How in the world does a lefty play a right-handed guitar? That's crazy. Um, I've enjoyed your music. Uh, um, were you familiar with Keith Green? I did not know Keith Green. I never met him. I know his wife pretty well, but I don't know him. Um, I play a right-handed guitar because where I grew up, everyone had better guitars than me, and I played other people's guitars. Um, Earl Scruggs, the banjo player, Flatten Scruggs, okay. Um, he, t he taught me to play the banjo. His son, Randy, produced my first two records. They had, I'm sure you don't care about this stuff. If you, if you don't care, say shut up, okay. In their house, they had, this is a Martin guitar, okay. This is a, uh, this is a Triple Lot 28 VS Martin. They had a pre-Civil War, pre-Civil War, Triple Lot D45 Martin, wow. which is priceless, okay. When they bought it, and had it rebuilt, the Martin Company, they said, what's this worth? They've valued it. And the Martin Company said, it's priceless. Okay. They kept it on the couch at their house. So as a 10-year-old kid, I could go over to Randy Scruggs' house and sit on the couch and play a priceless Martin. So you think I'm going to learn to play a left-handed guitar that's strung backwards? No. So that's why I do that. Okay. It's all greed. Greed and selfishness. Do we have any indication why the 12 wanted to follow Jesus since they didn't know at the time that he was the Messiah? Well, first of all, his, his authority, he says, follow me. Uh, and there, is, there are teachers, popular teachers. It's, it's kind of a thing that's happening in the proto-rabbinic period. And uh, there's something about him. I'm just talking off the top of my head. There's something about him that's compelling. This is a guy I want to spend time with. Okay, he says, follow me. I'm going to you know, walk away from everything and follow him. And I know it's not a very complete answer, but that's all I got. Michael, hmm? I have to say this. this uh, the, it leaves out what you just said, the fact that God, who had a purpose for us before we were created in our mother's womb, purposed these 12 men sure. to be discipled by Jesus. So they had a calling on them. Absolutely. And that calling was fulfilled. Right. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, that's the bottom line. I know line. you agree with that, right, but right. we just have to say it more. Mm -hmm. um, I, see, for me, that kind of goes without saying, but I, I get what I, you're saying. But it doesn't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, because you just said it. <laughs> yeah. So they wanted to because God foreordained them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and, and I think a lot of people maybe did refuse, but that's a whole other thing. I want to give you a human counterpoint to that. Okay. How many of us in this room, if Mike said today, follow me and, and I'll keep teaching you, would go? I'm guessing what, more than a couple. If, if I said, leave your home and leave everything and follow me, I don't think there'd be There'd be fewer of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and even I wouldn't go, so, yeah. 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 Yeah, see, they're, they're, I mean, the, the whole big picture behind that, I'm kind of assuming that, yeah. It was God's will and it was from the foundation of the world. But I know people who would just say that and not engage with the facts. And I want to engage with the, 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 the life situation. Jesus was a liberal. Oh, I know who, give, I know who wrote this. <laughs> we talked about this. Um, taking into consideration multiple meanings as can apply in a single word, do you believe Jesus was a liberal, a, a liberal of his time? Well, he was a radical, and this, this person means liberal in the, in the literal sense, and absolutely, he's liberal. He gives everything he's got, right? Yeah. And, uh, of course, the liberals today, our liberals think they're giving everything they got to. Of course, they're giving everything we've got to. But. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't clap at that. Um, yeah, but he, yeah, if there, if, if there ever was a liberal, it was Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. Do, do not quote me at that. <laughs> dude, you're going to get me in trouble, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that people, disciples, uh, were amazed because of Jesus' face, which was set like flint? You got Mark 10, 12. Is that Mark 10, 12? I thought that was Luke. It is. 10, 12? No, 10, 12 is if a man divorces. It's Luke, I think. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. So when she was saying when, when the people were amazed at Jesus, were, was that part of that? Car, that could have been it. They, were, they go, he's, he's going, man, and, we're, and he's not stopping. Uh, yeah, what, the way Luke says it, he resolutely sets his face for Jerusalem, and he knows he's going there to die. So what, do, what does your countenance look like when you're going to die? You look at that face and you go, yikes. I'm amazed at this guy. And he keeps telling him he's going to die. And, uh, and they, they say, what does he mean by he's going to die? That can't mean he's going to die. He's going to be raised from the dead. What does that mean? Can't be raised from the dead. How much time do you think lapsed between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000? I don't know. I mean, it's like a couple of chapters. <laughs> I don't know. I've not done my homework. I'm sorry. That's someone, you, someone needs to do their homework and tell me. Um... Psalm 23 states, he makes me lie down in green pastures when you were showing images yesterday of Israel, especially the lunar landscape appearance of Judea. I wonder if my conception of green pastures needs to be rethought. No, because they're in, they're in Galilee and Galilee is beautifully, beautifully green. It's a, it's a completely different place. The, the lake is there in the first place, the largest freshwater body you know, in the area. The, all of Israel gets their water from the Sea of Galilee. Um, no, it's a beautiful green, green place. So know that you can keep your uh, Psalm 23 image in your head when you read about the feeding of the 5,000. 
if they come back a year later to wash the bones and put them in the bone box, how is the stone moved at that time? That's a good question. It's, you know, it's predetermined. We're going to go back at this time and the whole family is going to go and we're going to, it's not just a, hey, you know, I think I'm going to go wash those bones today. You know, it's a, it's a ceremonial thing. So I, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing that the whole family goes and, and uh, it's kind of a macabre, you know, this is, you know, Uncle Bill's skull, you know, we're going to wash it, but that's just part of the, part of the world. And of course, it's the most unclean thing you can possibly do. That's another thing you're, you're, you're sacrificing. You're becoming unclean by um, going to a tomb in the first place. Uh, please give us the name of the Bible you mentioned two days ago with the Hebrew and the Greek text. It, text it's called a, a reader's Bible. It's, it's just what it's called. So just, just uh, go to a- Amazon has them. They're about 50 bucks. Uh, and it's the Hebrew text and the Greek text bound together in one volume. And the footnotes aren't footnotes. They're not cross-references. The footnotes are just uh, forms that, you're, that you may not be familiar with. It's for someone who, you know, who can't really fluently read it, okay? Someone who was fluent would, ro- would roll their eyes that we were using that, but tough. We need help, so we're gonna get our reader's, our reader's Bible. I don't understand. With, with the rich young ruler, why did Jesus not say the first four commands as the first one was the one lacking most? I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. You figure it out. Tell me. How did Peter recognize Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfigure? I have, I have no idea except that Jesus is talking to Moses and maybe he gathers from hearing what they're saying that that must be Moses. Um, huh? He had a YouTube video. He recognized him from YouTube. Um, were there... Statues of Moses, Elijah, and Israel, not that I know of at that time. Facebook, no. Uh, but, but we, I mean, we know from, is it Luke, that they're talking, he's talking to Moses specifically about his exodus, about Jesus' exodus. So that's how he knows he's Moses. Of course, maybe later on, Peter could say, who in the world were those? And Jesus could say, that's Moses and Elijah. So, but that's a good, that's the kind of stuff that bothers me. How in the world do they know that? Um, why do you write your songs so high? Can't, can't you just lower them? I have to sing lower. Um, well, most of the songs I wrote when I could sing high. Yeah. You know. So, and I'm not a good enough musician to play them in different keys. So, there you go. Okay. In Mark 10, 15, Jesus says, whoever does not uh, receive the kingdom of God as a child shall not enter it. Is he saying we are to receive the kingdom like a child would receive it, which is what I think he's saying, or is he saying that we are to receive the kingdom like we receive a child? You know, that's interesting because a little bit later he sort of alludes to that. So maybe he's saying both things at the same time. I, I got to think about that. That's a, good, that's a great question. Oh, the withered fig tree. Why is this called the sandwich story? <clears throat> uh, that's, that's a, <clears throat> here's your big word for today. It's called in, an inclusio. And Mark does this all the time. He'll start telling a story, then he'll break off and tell another story. And then he'll come back and tell that story. And they call that the sandwich device. 
That's where that comes from. Uh, and the, the, the fig tree, he starts telling the story of the fig tree, right? And then he cuts to the temple story and he comes back to the... Uh, if, and there are several places that he does that. I, I should know those in my head automatically. Bill would, but I don't. Regarding the Israel tour, does your group depart from the U.S. on the same flight to Israel? No. You get yourself to Tel Aviv and we pick you up. What does a ballpark cost? It's like, what is it, like three grand? Not including the flights, like 2,600 or something like that? I think it's like 35. 35? Yeah, that was years ago, so I don't, I don't understand. It's 38. Somebody said 38. Okay, I don't even know. I don't know stuff like that. But that's 10, 10 days. That's all your hotels and, and breakfast and dinner and everything for, three, or for 10 days. So. Well worth it, they say. I'm not going to plug the Israel tour. And the truth is, you don't have to go to Israel. You can you know, invest yourself and look at the pictures and read the books, but... It's just, it is a lot of fun. Okay. At the beginning of session two, you stated that Mark is a confessional book. Is that the word you use? Yes, it's a confessional. The structure of Mark is a confessional structure. It's the confession of Peter, you are the Christ, and the confession of the Roman soldier, you are the son of God. Those are two confessions. So that's the structure, Mark. That Mark is divided into two parts. The second part, beginning at 15, is about the Son of God. What's the first part? The first, okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> also, you said that Mark is divided into two parts. The second part, beginning at 15 to 39, is about the Son of God. What's the first part? The first part is the whole first section that establishes that Jesus is the Christ. The content of Mark, the table of contents of Mark is verse 1. The beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Section one is the Christ, and it ends when Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Christ. Section two ends when the Roman soldier says, you're the Son of God. In the last session, you identified a mistake that you wanted to correct. I didn't catch that one. I didn't catch it. I don't remember. How much of Mark capturing Jesus' actual Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're really, you're listening. Wow. Uh, yeah, the mistake, I said, I, I had made such a big deal about the fact that Mark is interested in what, not what Jesus says, but what he does. Yeah, and, and I'll still kind of, I'll hold my guns on the first maybe two-thirds of Mark. It's still, that's still true. But the interesting thing, and I'm just seeing this for the first time, when, when we get to the passion, all of a sudden, it's really about what Jesus says. There's lots of teaching at the end, and I've got to adjust my, not to be so dogmatic about, you know, about what I think, what it, what it is. I had, a, I had a professor who used to say, never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. And if we're, unfortunately, uh, that's what I do sometimes, so I apologize. <laughs>